KMTT, the weekly shiur on Agadot Chelek. This is Ezra Beck. And this is our third shiur, and today we're going to be discussing the continuation of the Gemara we had last week, Daftzadi Amud Aleph. Once again, looking for the source of Hayat HaMetim and Atara, the source, the biblical source for resurrection. Um, what we saw previously was three different answers to the question um, What is the biblical source for Tchiyat HaMetim? I'd like to repeat just the last one we read because I think we're going to read today is in response to it. The last source that we read was the Pasuk Vatem HaDvekim Bashem HaLokichem Chayim Kulchem Hayom which the Gemara said, Chayim Kulchem Hayom. Rashi says the word Hayom is unnecessary. You who are cleave unto the Lord your God, you are alive today. Which they assume that from the word today, that it means you're alive in the future as well. And continuing from that Gemara, we have the following, we have the following story. Sha'alu Romi'imet Rabbi Yeshua ben Chananya. The Romans asked Rabbi Yeshua ben Chananya, "Minayin shekadosh poruchu mechayem itim veyodei amasha atid lihiot." Notice that the Gemara presents this as though it was one question. It's actually two questions. And if so, why are they joined either historically? Why did the Romans, so to speak, ask these two questions together? Or what I think is perhaps a better question: Why did the Gemara choose to run the two questions together? Two questions are: How do you know what is the source that God resurrects the dead? And that he knows the future. God's foreknowledge of the future. So he answered them, I have one pasuk, one verse, which proves them both. Which obviously explains why the two questions have been conjoined from a literary point of view. Since there's one answer. What is the pasuk? A pasuk which we read, in fact, uh, in the past. We read it last week. And the verse is, that verse where God says to Moshe Rabbeinu, "Min amikra hazeh nemar ba'yom ha'Hashem el Moshe inchash rochiv emavotecha bekam ha'amazeh bezana." God says to Moshe, "You are, you will uh, lie with your fathers, and this people will arise and go astray." Now, as we already noticed, what is even explained because it assumes that you remember from last week. Uh, the proof here for resurrection is by rereading, by moving the comma in the sentence from before the word vikam and will arise to afterwards. And you read it as follows. You will lie with your father, with your fathers and you will rise. And these people will go astray. So the story apparently the Romans said to Rabbi Shur ben Hananya, you can read the Pasuk differently. In fact it's the more obvious way to read it. Not that you will lie with your fathers and rise, but you arrive lie, you will lie with your fathers. And this people will rise and go astray. And so he said to them, End the story. He said to them, Okay, at least you got half of what you asked for, because I still have proven that God has knowledge of the future because of the end of the Pasuk, which says that this people will arise and go astray. So God told Moshe Rabbeinu that which is going to take place. I think this is a very strange story. First of all, why is the Gemara bring it, since it has absolutely nothing new to tell us? Uh, to bring a verse to tell us that God knows the future is trivial. Nor is this even the best example. 
but the Torah is based on God's knowledge of the future. God said to Avinu, God said to Avinu, your people will be enslaved, your children will be enslaved, and in fact, he said exactly 400 years. A general statement that after you die, the people will go astray, you know, many people could have taken a chance at prophesizing that. There are quite explicit predictions made in the Torah, uh, in prophecy. Surely Nevi'im is, is the whole, the whole Sifre Nevi'im is based on that. But even in the Torah, there are a number of quite explicit uh, prophecies made in the Tochacha, God speaking to Bamavino, God speaking to Moshe Rabbeinu. Uh, no one seriously doubts that the Torah believes that God knows the future. So that would hardly be the, the point of this Gemara. And the first part, which is of course the point of the entire sugya that we're learning, how do we know that God uh, will resurrect the dead? But that didn't even work out. He, he capitulated when they answered him that the word Vakam goes as the introduction to the end of the Pasuk and not the conclusion of the first part of the Pasuk. He said, you're right. But at least you got half of what you asked for. So I'm really wondering what the point of this entire story is. Secondly, repeating a question I hinted at the very beginning, what's the point of combining the two questions? And why, in fact, is there one Pasuk? Why did Rabbi Yeshua think that it would be a clever thing to have one Pasuk answer both questions and that in fact there is a connection between the two uh, questions and the two answers one sees from the way in which he eventually said them you got half of what you asked for if the questions are unrelated then they didn't get half of what they asked for they got one yes and one no mathematically speaking that's half but but there was no particular unit to begin with if they asked three questions they would have gotten a third or two thirds uh, they just happened to have asked two questions. She said to them, you had a lucky day, you got 50%. Uh, the, the answer, Nekutu miya palgo go home with half in your hands, seems to imply that it's half of a whole. There's some connection between the two parts of this question and two parts of this answer. What is that connection? I think if we understand the connection, we'll also understand a different approach to, uh, once again, to the notion of Tachiyat HaMitim. Uh, what we've done in the last two weeks is every time we see the derivation, the biblical source that the Gemara suggests for the resurrection, we try to understand what that source indicates. In other words, like what's the point of what other would be just a, a merely curiosity. Someday people will arise from the dead. But this is one of the, one of the principles of faith. The entire Gemara is based on the statement of the Mishnah that he who doesn't believe in Torah has no portion in the world to come. So the question is, what, what's the importance, what's the significance, what's the metaphysical meaning of the doctrine of resurrection? We've tried to draw a different conclusion from each uh, of our sources. And I think we're going to do that now as well. What is the nature of the question, the dual question? How do we know, how do you know that God resurrects the dead and also knows the future? I think the... Uh, the common idea to these two principles, God's foreknowledge and God's resurrection, and the fact that the Gemara puts this question in the mouths of the Romans, Havomiim, Roman philosophers or Roman disputants of Rabbi Yeshua ben Hanani, who was a person who got around a lot and had visited Rome, indicates what the point is here, it really is here. 
the Romans here made a sort of a sentence for the Greeks, but they represent in the world, in the historical world of Yeshua ben Hanania, of, uh, of, of second century Jewry, they represent the rational, perhaps the philosophic, the scientific, a certain attitude which I don't think would find miracles to be unusual or amazing or incredulous. But by miracles I mean something which you can imagine how it's done. So we don't have the power to do it, at least yet, meaning they don't have the power to do it yet. But uh, there are beings, the gods, who are stronger, more powerful, wiser, have all sorts of powers which human beings don't have. So if you want to know, if you ask the question, to ask the Roman ask another question, how do you know that a god can fly? The answer is, why not? You know, humans can't exactly fly, but you can imagine yourself flying. The, the, the ability would mean you have to have bigger wings, you have to, that's why there's a Greek myth about how human beings can fly, by just strapping on wings. And it's a fact that today we do fly. So, no one would find it in the, in the, in the Roman world, nobody would find it impossible to believe that there are beings, which they thought existed, of course, the gods, who can leap over tall buildings in a single bound, can run faster than a speeding bullet, can do really amazing things, but the things which are within the human conception, but multiply ten times, a hundred times, even a thousand times. The two examples given here, are examples which pierce the boundaries of natural possibility. One is in the realm of the physical, actually the biological, and one is in the realm of the metaphysical. Starting specifically from the second one, knowing the future is not a finer form, a more powerful form of knowing the present. Some people know more, some people know less. Truly wonderful beings, gods with small g's, the gods of the Roman Empire, might very well know a lot more than any than any human being. If we take as an example, you know, the, the most powerful computer existing today, so it has more knowledge and can think faster, can compute faster, than any, than any human being. How much faster? A million times faster. More than a million times faster. But that's within the boundaries which encompass human knowledge as well. The knowledge of the present, of the extremely well-knowing God and a human being, they're both in the same realm of possibility. The future is beyond that realm. There is no way that we can conceive of to know the future. There is a philosophical question, which is frankly, I think, more or less in the Middle Ages. It was present in Greek philosophy, but I really doubt that Chazal are talking about it. Which would argue that the future doesn't exist and therefore isn't even a possibility of knowledge. The future will exist, but it doesn't exist in the present. You can't know the future. This is debated in medieval philosophy, and frankly it's debated in modern philosophy as well, uh, as to whether or not it makes even sense to write the sentence, does one know the future? So I'm, I don't think that's what Chazal is talking about. 
But in terms of uh, how much would I have to concentrate in order to know the future? If I squint, I can see things which otherwise I couldn't see. If I did that immensely, I could see even better. But no amount of squinting or concentrating or wrinkling my brow will get me an even one inch closer to knowing the future. The knowledge of the future is truly a divine ability in the sense that, in the sense of the divine, which is very different than the typical Roman understanding of the divine. Roman gods were more powerful versions of human beings. If the Jews claim that God knows the future, and not because, as in some form of astrology, because the future is already written in the present. There's the difference between astrology and other forms of divination practiced in the ancient world and divine foreknowledge. Astrology is a form of science. We don't tend to think of it that way anymore, but that's not because it's inherently different. We, today we believe astrology is bad science. But astrology is a form of science, meaning that if you if you look at a bomb and you have the right knowledge of the present, you can predict when it will go off. That's not knowledge of the future. That's knowledge of the present. But what's going to happen tomorrow is already written in the present because of mechanical laws. So if one looks in the stars, and the stars in fact do influence directly what takes place, then one can predict with a high degree of uh, of precision, perhaps even perfect precision, what will place tomorrow. But that's not what the Jews claim for God. They say that God knows the future, including, most importantly, the future of free will. Now, if you don't believe in free will, there's not a problem. But if you believe in free will, then that astrology or divination or reading the entrails of birds will not tell you what someone's going to decide tomorrow because it hasn't yet been decided. But actually, you have to directly perceive the future. And what the Romans were questioning was a certain theological belief of the Jews that God exists beyond normal bounds. In, in later philosophic terms, philosophic terms of the Middle Ages, the Jews believe, I don't actually agree with the statement, but it was fairly common in the Middle Ages, God is above time. He's not in time, He's above time. And that's why He knows the future. Tchiyatam is the same kind of idea. Not so much because of some logical problem, but because of human experience. The one thing in the world which has no example. You can't build on your experience to then magnify it a hundred times and say that's what God has. That's resurrection. Without exception, life leads to death and death does not lead to life. This I think is, is understood by Chazal even within our own terms. Uh, we every day say a bracha three times a day in Shemar Esrei which is called, in the language of Chazal, Givurot. Ta le'olam adoshem. You are Gibor, you are great. You do, um, you do great things. There's a list of the great things that God does. He's, uh, he he uh, uh, cures the sick. He, he straightens the falling. 
he frees the, the, the captured. The whole bracha, I gave you three examples in the bracha, but the real example in the bracha is Mechayemitim. Tagi bol olam Hashem, Mechayemitim atarav lo shiya, v'neeman atal achayot meitim, bochot Hashem mechayemitim. The revival of the dead, the resurrection of the dead, is the prime example of givurot Hashem, of the might and power of God. Because it's totally beyond the human ken. It's totally beyond human possibilities. Not only relatively speaking, but it's beyond the boundaries of human possibilities. There is no way to even begin to think of how to do that. That's more or less true, according to the physical laws that we know of. And even if somebody doubts that, and there are theories today, rather speculative theories, about how life might arise from the inert in a natural manner, but in any event, in human experience, and in the eyes of both Chazal and the Roman philosophers who are the protagonists of this discussion, you're talking about something which is beyond the human imagination for humans to do. So what the Romans were asking uh, of Yeshua ben Chananya is, your claim for your God, what is your source for that? Now, I, I, I can't exactly explain why giving a biblical verse would satisfy them. Presumably there's the people who are not impressed by the Hebrew Bible. But maybe they were. I don't, there's a little bit of a strange thing here where people come to ask Chazal for a Pasuk. Uh, maybe it was a... a time when the Torah was already considered to be a valuable and uh, a valuable source of human wisdom or something like that. Obviously, from a theological point of view, it will not impress the heretic that you have a Pasuk that says that you believe in what you believe in. But, uh, all right, but this is the way Chazal phrased it. But the question is here about the power of God. And that, since it's one question, Rishim Chananya gave them one answer. It's first of all, it's a prediction of God about free will. Again, it's not a prediction about whether it will rain tomorrow, where God perhaps might be a better meteorologist than the average human being. This is a question of free will. The people today are committed to serving God. God says, I know, I'm telling you something, in a few years they're going to do the opposite. So that's foreknowledge of the unpredictable. You have to know the future directly. And the Pasuk is predicated on, the way Rabbi Shubhan Hanan read it, that you will lie with your fathers and you will arise. So this Pasuk, more than any other Pasuk in the Torah, specifically because it combines the two, says that God exists in a realm of possibilities that doesn't exist for you, that doesn't even exist for human beings. And so he said to them, after they showed them that you could read the Pasuk differently, well, at least you got half of what you asked for. And that half is really the answer. Because since the two questions are so intimately related, then by giving you half, it's not that I struck out once and succeeded. Basically, I succeeded. Because I proved half of what you asked, I proved the basic point, that was that was what concerned you. Now this suggests another, I would say additional, I wouldn't say the supplants, but it suggests another meaning for the doctrine of resurrection. The doctrine of resurrection is, doesn't explain why specifically resurrection, but it represents an expression of God's total power in the universe. No physical law, no law of nature can stand 
before God. And the most inexorable law of nature is death. Every living being dies. And yet God says, not for me. I can resurrect the dead. Or the way the Pasuk says, I can cause death to be abolished. There is no other act which so dramatically and I think philosophically states God's total omnipotence, more than omnipotence, that God can overcome nature. Nature cannot stand before God. I, I would add, I think that's the meaning of the second Bach of Hashem. You are infinitely powerful. And, and where do I see that? In Tchiyat HaMetim. It's I had never experienced it. I've experienced the other things. I saw God uh, heal the sick. I saw God uh, straighten up the fallen. I've never seen God um, resurrect the dead except in the eye of faith. And you are faithful to resurrect the dead. But that's the bracha we're saying in Shemarese. We're saying that we are davening to a God not who will someday do something cute trick of resurrect the dead. We're davening to a God who's capable of anything because he's not within nature, but outside of nature. So in this point of view, Tchiat HaMitim, and this was the conversation between them, the, the amazing thing about Tchiat HaMitim for the non-Jewish hearers of Judaism in Yeshua Mechanen's time was that the Jews believe in a God who is not bound by any rule whatsoever, any physical rule whatsoever, any rule of nature whatsoever. And this, I think, could be, at least partly, why is so important to us. Not so much, or not only for what it says about the dead person, or I myself hope to someday be resurrected, as was true in the cases that I brought in the past, Aaron and Moshe. But it's what it says about God, not what it says about human existence. It's merely an example, but it's the best example of our belief in total omnipotence, total independence of God from the natural world, which of course he created. Okay, that's our first uh, our first uh, story here. In terms of what the Gemara is searching for, a new source for resurrection, so in fact the story is a failure. There's no new source was suggested, and the source that is here, in fact, uh, doesn't conclusively prove that which was it was suggested for. So, let us continue on to the next line in the Gemara, which is a new, a new, uh, a new approach. Um, Tanya, Amar Rabbi Lazar Rabbi Yossi, B'davar ziyafti sifrei minim. If the previous conversation was between Yeshua ben Hanania and the Romans. And the earlier conversations were held the Jews with themselves. So we have a conversation between Rabbi Yossi and the Minim. Minim means heretics, presumably Jewish heretics. Ziyafti Sifrei Minim. What is Sifrei Minim, the books of the heretics? I suspect it means the Torah of the heretics. These are Jews, so therefore they have a Torah. But in their Torah, there's no Tratamitim. Now, of course, in our Torah, there's no explicit Tratamitim either, which is why it's the same Torah. In other words, the way they read the Torah, the Minim have a Torah which there is no Tchiat and we're trying to prove Tchiat Torah. 
That's the whole point of this Gemara, is what is the biblical source for Tchat HaMitim. The Dabba says, Ziyafti, I forged, doesn't mean forged, I uprooted, I negated the books of the Minim. Shayu Omrim, ain't Tchat HaMitim in the Torah. I said to them, you have purged your Torah, you've, you've falsified your Torah, and yet you didn't succeed. Because I'll still show you, even in your Torah, where the Pasuk is found, a place that you didn't, you didn't pay attention to, and, and therefore you didn't notice it, but you actually have a proof for Tchatamitim. What is this new proof? This will in fact be a new one. You say there is no resurrection in the Torah. But I say to you, Harei Omer, Hikareti kareta nefesh ahi avonaba. The context isn't important. There's a pasuk that says that if someone commits a certain sin, he will be cut off. Hikaret tikaret hanefesh ahi, that soul who has done that sin, shall surely be cut off. Double verb. Hikaret tikaret avonaba. His sin is in it. And Rabbi Lezer explains this pasuk to mean, If the soul is cut off, meaning destroyed, then what does it mean? Avonaba, its sin is in it. There's a tendency in Chazal, wherever a statement is made in the timeless, it means it, 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 uh, it perseveres. So Avonaba, his sin Hasin, the sin of the soul, is existent within it. Le'imat, the soul's been cut off, meaning destroyed. So where is the perseverance? Where is the endurance of this particular sin? Lav la'olamaba. This means that there is olamaba. As I pointed out here, the phrase is olamaba. I pointed out from the first year two weeks ago that the Gemara does not distinguish between resurrection, apparently bodily resurrection, and olamaba. Why not? There's a discussion between the Rishonim, the Ramban, the Rambam, and others. But it's, it's clear that the Gemara does not distinguish between them. So we're not going to pay attention to this um, uh, discrepancy. Uh, the Gemara doesn't consider it to be a discrepancy. So on one hand it says that certain kinds of sinners, there's a punishment in the Torah called karait. If you have karait, you no longer exist. And yet, that very same Pasuk says, Avonaba, his sin will endure within it. Within him. So this means that there is a, there is future existence after the death in this world. Okay, so the answer in this, this is a real discussion, so there's a real answer. Um, they could have answered him, Oh, he said, he a different question. Why did he need Abba? He could have learned the same thing from the double verb. As you know, the Torah is full of double verbs, which usually are interpreted to mean, surely. Hikareti karait means not just you will be cut off, but you will be surely cut off. But nonetheless, it's a strange form. And the Chazal tend to uh, uh, learn things from it. As hikareti karait, hikareti palam azet, hikareti lamaba. And in fact, there is a source for that. Uh, so the answer was, they would have said to him, Dibrat Torah b'lashon b'nei adam. They're heretics. They don't like fine drashot. They would have said that hikareti karait in, in normal Hebrew just means hikareti. Double verbs don't mean more. You don't. You can't do anything with a double verb. But Avonaba, that was a good question. Because how can the sin persevere, endure, if uh, the person has been totally destroyed and wiped out from existence? Um, I think there's a very interesting source. This source is the, is the first source, in fact, the only source, which is indicating that there is a future life for the evil. 
for the sinners. Not for tzaddikim like Aaron and Moshe. Or Avam Yitzchak Yaakov, the examples that we read last week and two weeks ago. Here it says that this person is guilty of a terrible crime, so terrible that his punishment is he karet, he karet. His punishment is that he will be destroyed. And yet, Avonaba, his soul bears, continues to bear his sin. Now, the actual idea is not revolutionary. Uh, the Pasuk, not a Pasuk of the Torah, but the Pasuk, which is most explicit about resurrection, the Rabbimi Shenei Afar Yakutsu, Eilu Lechayei Olam Ve'eilu Lidira'on Basar, Pasuk says that many of those who sleep in the dust will awake, will awaken. Some for eternal life, and some for uh, disgrace, explicitly says that at the time of the resurrection, everybody will be resurrected. And the tzaddikim will receive the rewards, and the rishayim will receive, again, a punishment. So I'm saying the idea itself is not revolutionary. But in terms of, first of all, it's a pasuk in the Torah. Second, in terms of the sources, again, I think that all these sources also indicate to us the meaning behind it. What is the purpose? What is the meaning? What is the philosophic meaning of the historical dogma of the future resurrection? So if this was, if this is the source, then it's a totally new idea. The idea is that the resurrection is a final accounting. If you've sinned, the case, I imagine that if you've sinned, you have a final accounting, then all the more so if you've been a tzaddik. But, but if you've sinned in this world, somehow the punishment, what punishment did you get? <laughs> you were killed. That's the best we can do. We can kill you. You know? It's not a full accounting. So there'll be a resurrection, even after killing you, we'll bring you back to kill you again. Or we'll bring you back to punish you in some other way. The idea being that the future resurrection, I don't think we should concentrate Dafka on the evil person's side, and all the more so for Sadiqim. In other words, this world doesn't represent the fullest sense of justice. God has a commitment to justice. God is the ultimate judge. And it may not concern us very much in the short run, but that the, there's a guarantee of final justice. The day of the resurrection is Yom Hadin. It's the final judgment day. That's not a... Uh, for those of you who might, who might be somewhat startled by my statement... That's not a Christian concept. It's taken by, by the Christians from the Jews. Chazal have a clear, uh, based on Pesukim, in, in, uh, among other places in Daniel, the Pesuk I just quoted, Chazal uh, have a clear conception of Yom Hadin, meaning Rosh Hashanah every year, and Yom Hadin HaAcharon. There will come a time when, in the context of resurrection, God will resurrect everybody, and will judge everybody, and there will be a final judgment on that person's total life. So the resurrection is part of that. It's not to make you feel good. It's not what I said in Aaron and Moshe to have them complete their life's mission. It's something else. The resurrection is part of a divine cosmic drama whereby the world 
has to stand and give a final reckoning before God. And at that point, everyone will see fully that divine justice is perfect. That's, I think, the idea. If, if, if resurrection were to be based only on this pasuk, then that would be, that would be its meaning. Just I want to add one thing. Uh, comparing this source to the last source we read last week, which we quoted in the beginning of today's talk. How did I explain that pasuk? That pasuk says that if you're, if you're devek b'ashem, if you cleave unto God, then, then you live. Including resurrection. Meaning, it, it implied that, it's not that God does a miracle and brings back the dead. Those who cleave unto God, there's no reason why they should be dead. Their life is eternal by definition. So it's true, they do die, but it'll spring back again because true life, as opposed to what appears to us to be true, that everything dies, as I pointed out in the beginning of today's talk, uh, everyone dies, but logically, if you cleave unto God, then you live as this day. Because your life is, is, is implicit in the fact that God is within you, you are within God. Um, this Pasuk that we read just now, on the one hand it says something similar, but it says almost the opposite. Because even though this person has sinned, and has sinned grievously, so grievously that his proper punishment, which was already carried out, is he karet, and not just he karet, but he karet, he karet. He will surely and will be, be uh, 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 destroyed, cut off from all existence. And yet, Avonava, you, you think that sin destroys the soul? Makes sense to me. It's the Contrapositive to those who cleave unto God are alive. Those who do the opposite of cleaving unto God are dead. The Gemara says, They ask wisdom. What is the what is the 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 judgment of any sinner? Sin equals death. This pasuk says, Avona ba. The human soul bears sin. Now that, that, that's a statement of, it's a critical statement. It's a statement of, of, of defamation. It says your soul is, is contaminated by the sins, but it implies that you still exist. The human soul can bear, with unfortunate consequences, but bears its sin. The human soul is greater than the effect of sin. So even even when you've been cut off, nonetheless, you still you still exist. The sin is in it. Sin doesn't wipe it out. The sin is subsumed. The sin is the sin fills up the soul. The soul still exists. That's that's an added statement I want to make. That if you ask the question as to what the What's the relationship between sin and, and existence, sin and life? So I would say the general opinion in, in Chazal is that they're, they're, they're contradictory. On the other hand, it's, it's a fact that sinners exist. 
And this Pesach says that even ultimate sinners exist. So ultimate sinners that they were, that they're dead. And they were destroyed. And they were destroyed twice. Hikavet, hikavet. But that just means that they're in big, that they're in big trouble. But still, Avona, their sin, completely contaminates and defiles them. But them still exists. They're still, min They will persevere somehow enough to re-exist, to be resurrected, to future time, when, uh, when, when God will resurrect, will resurrect the dead. Okay, that's it for today. Next week we will continue straight along the same Gemara. There's more questions of where do we know Tchatam Eitim from. The next Gemara is an interesting one for its historical background. It involves not a conversation of Chazal with heretics, not a conversation of Chazal with Romans, and not a conversation of Chazal with other Jews, but a conversation of Chazal, Rav Meir in this case, with Cleopatra Malkita, the Queen Cleopatra, uh, we could probably compute which Cleopatra it's talking about. Um, and it's not the Cleopatra of of Julius Caesar, uh, but some many years later, in the time of Abimeir, the second century. Uh, but nonetheless, we are talking about an Egyptian uh, an Egyptian queen. And until then, Koltov.